you for listening to Refuge Radio, the podcast from the National Wildlife Refuge Association. I am Angie Horn. I am the SoCal Regional Refuge Partnership Specialist. And today I am up in beautiful Ventura, California, and I'm sitting here with Joseph Brandt. Joseph, welcome to Refuge Radio. Hi, Angie. How's it going? Good. Um, you want to introduce yourself and uh, talk about uh, a little bit about what you do here? Yeah, sure. Um, so, as you said, I'm, I'm Joseph Brandt. I'm the supervisory wildlife biologist for the California Condor Recovery Program at the Hopper Mountain National Wildlife Refuge Complex. So, a whole long title, um, but essentially what it means is I lead a team of biologists that's responsible for the reintroduction of condors in Southern California. And so since 1992, the complex has been um, releasing condors into the wild um, as an effort to recover the species. Um, condors were uh, very, very endangered. Uh, you know, back in the early 1980s, their population was down to only 23 individuals in the world. Only 22 of those were in the wild. And then in 1987, um, as kind of a last ditch effort to save the species, they um, trapped all remaining condors into the wild and brought them into captivity for uh, a captive breeding program. And so the condors that we are reintroducing um, on the refuges uh, back into the wild are kind of the products of captive breeding. So the Hopper Mountain National Wildlife Complex is actually four different refuges, three of which are kind of condor focused. Uh, the, uh, the fourth is a, a refuge along the coast of California and deals with snowy plovers and, and dune habitat. But um, the three refuges that are condor focused, um, one of those is a release site and the other two are just kind of important condor habitat. And so our teams are based out of uh, those refuges to kind of reintroduce condors into the wild. So we still annually release condors every year. Um, and then uh, we track those, we track that population that's been established in the wild, um, keep track of their nests because they're nesting now in the wild, and, um, and then monitor and manage that flock um, in hopes to establish a self-sustaining population. Can you talk a little bit more about these uh, refuges? Uh, I know some of them are closed to the public, um, so people can't just uh, go up and see these condors for themselves. Um, but if you want to talk a little bit about how you balance, um, you know, um, promoting the condor recovery project while also restricting access and how how do you guys balance that sure well yeah the condor refuges actually um are both the two primary refuges that we do most of the condor work out of are the hopper mountain national wildlife refuge and the bitter creek national wildlife refuge and so bitter creek is our release site it's where we release condors each year in the fall um, it's also where we do a lot of the trapping we trap the population um we, we actually try to trap the population twice a year um, to monitor for lead exposures and to keep transmitters on them. So we're doing a lot of activity that is pretty sensitive to kind of public access, you know, it, you know, overlapping that type of um, activity with just kind of free reign, you know, public can come on and, and work around it. Or it doesn't really work very well. Um, Hopper is also uh, an area that's just really difficult to get to. So there's kind of public ac access issues that way. But both of the refuges are, are closed to the public. Um, 
we you know kind of balance that by giving other opportunities for the public to kind of see condors in different ways uh, we do offer tours we have a friends group that will offer tours during the you know nice season when the weather is, is a bit nicer and we're not dealing with high fire danger or really kind of rainy season um, we we offer tours at least uh, once once a month um, and then we also do tours just our own staff will give tours to different groups like you know the local Audubon groups or other school groups um, and then we use uh, you know kind of some technology as a way to give folks access to condors um, you know maybe the, the most um, uh, popular form of that comes by way of our uh, condor nest camera so we actually have installed a live streaming um, nest camera in one of the condor nests that we have this season. And um, and then with, through a partnership with the Cornell uh, Lab of Ornithology, we, um, we stream that live on their bird cams website. And so that actually brings, it gives us the ability to bring a condor nest and a chick developing, you know, over the six months it takes to become a flighted condor into the homes of any number of people. It's usually, you know, the viewership is, you know, in the millions of people that that watch that chick develop across across the world, really. I mean, there's a lot of viewers in the United States, but I think um, the last stats I saw were, you know, well over 200 countries, um, you know, having people viewing uh, that nest camera. So that's really exciting. It's a lot of work for our team, and we have a really awesome uh, awesome group of folks that are, you know, help help us. Um, you know, kind of operate that camera. You know, the Santa Barbara Zoo, who we work really closely with, is a big partner for that program as well. Um, and so it's really been a big partnership to kind of, you know, use uh, technology as a way to give people access um, in ways that maybe are even better than, than you know, you know, uh, Going seeing on a tour, close. yeah, seeing yeah. one up close, yeah, exactly. Um, so we'll come back to the technology piece because yeah. I do want to talk about how you guys track the condors and mm-hmm. all those things. But um, for our audience, um, can you talk a little bit about how condors got to a cr- the critical point that they were at and then um, where you are now in terms of the recovery? Sure. Um, so, you know, the California condor really, you know, it wasn't a species that we paid a lot of attention to, we being European humans anyways, like um, until really, you know, probably the 1930s and 40s is when, you know, the first naturalists um, kind of made a concerted effort to study condor populations. And so one of the first folks to do that, his name was Carl Coford. And Carl Coford was uh, an early, you know, kind of a naturalist uh, working um, on, uh, his master's or, or doctorate um, out, out of UC Berkeley, I believe. And he kind of was the first person to really kind of write the book on, on condors. And at that time, it was believed that condors were really in low numbers then, um, probably, you know, anywhere from 200 to, you know, around 100 birds. And that was, say, in the early, uh, the 1940s or so. And this is throughout California. This is throughout California, across the range. Okay. Um, and Cofer didn't, you know, have, have it all figured out but um um he he definitely was the first person to really take a conservative effort to look at like you know what the overall population was doing it's not really well understood um 
why those populations declined. There are some, you know, pretty good educated guesses. Um, one, some of which have to do with the decline of marine mammal populations along the along the west coast at the time of European settlement. You know, we came in, started using um, marine mammals as a resource. You know, for um, for their blubber and and fur and those sorts of things, and we kind of really decimated those populations. And that was a major food source for condors. Um, we know that through a nitrogen isotopic um, ratios of condor feathers taken from samples back then, you know, so some of the, the sampling that was done then. Uh, condors were, of course, also this really big bird, so there's probably some direct persecution. You know, people saw these big thing, big animals and got curious, and the way, unfortunately then, that, you know, folks got to see something up close is they'd shoot it. Um, there's also egg collection and a few different other um, factors that probably played into their decline. Um, it was in, you know, kind of the 70s and 80s after Coford when a condor recovery program was initiated um, that uh, biologists learned that lead poisoning was having an, an impact on condors. And, you know, whether lead contributed to that major, you know, the major decline prior to Coford working or, you know, or early on, that's not as clear. But certainly when the population was as small as, you know, 50 or, or fewer, um, lead was playing a role in, in the in probably the eventual extinction of condors were it not for the Fish and Wildlife Service um, and other organizations to kind of step in and save the species. Um, and so that's really what brought us down to 22 individuals and really what kind of drove the impetus of we need to do something drastic to save the species. We need to pull these um, these remaining condors in from the wild just to keep them alive because whatever was happening in the habitat was was so dire that um, had that not been done, um, the species would have very likely gone extinct. So... Um why these refuges for the recovery project? Because yeah. even though there are populations, you know, we can talk later about the Baja mm -hmm. and Arizona and Pinnacles. Yeah. Uh, but why Hopper and Bitter Creek? Yeah. So um, Hopper Mountain National Wildlife Refuge and Bitter Creek were really, you know, it's pretty awesome to be go up and work on these refuges because that's where Co Carl, Co Carl Coford did a lot of his work. So you're really kind of following in literally in the footsteps and down the trails that he may have blazed while he was out studying condors. So there's kind of that excitement. And I think that's really this portion of California that uh, Bitter Creek and, and Hopper Mountain and Blue Ridge National Wildlife Refuge, the other, the third refuge that's a part of our, our complex, um, this really was the last place that condors had a foothold in the wild. This is where that remnant population was trapped. And so when they um, began to look at you know areas to reintroduce the condor into the wild, they looked at where they were last first. Um, and then they kind of expanded that that you know that look to see where other populations may have been. And that's what led to a release uh, you know uh, release efforts happening in northern Arizona and also along the central California coast and then eventually down in Baja California as well. Um, so you know the Hopper Mountain National Wildlife Refuge is a is a you know you go out there and you just look at the habitat um, and it's it's really really great nesting habitat. The, the you know people. It was a surprise to me actually when I moved to Southern California and you know started my work on condors. Just how rugged the terrain is. Um, you know, I mean, it is. Uh, you know, condor country is mountainous and lots of canyons, and you know the species relies on air 
um, from that topography, thermals or, or a graphic uplift to, to stay, to, to fly around. And so, you know, you go out to Hopper and it's just like, wow, this is, this, this area was built for a species like condor because they can just move around effortlessly using the wind currents. Um, and Hopper is really a great area for nesting. Uh, Bitter Creek is a little bit to the north of Hopper and kind of in the foothills of the Central Valley. And that area, you know, kind of the grassland, oak savanna area that rings the mountain, or kind of hilled area that rings the Central Valley on either side, you know, that kind of horseshoe portion of California's mountains and, and this kind of Ventura and Kern counties and Santa Barbara counties, it really is um, ideal foraging habitat. It's where condors go to find food and um, search for carrion um, because they're only search they're only going to feed on things that are that are already dead. Since we've worked to get populations established, we've learned that there's also in those foothill areas also habitat for nesting, really good habitat for roosting. So it's just pretty much ideal habitat for condors. And we're not all that far from the second largest city in the United yeah. States. Yeah. The, the, kind of northern portions of, of Los Angeles County that are still pretty heavily heavily urbanized. And then you get into the San Gabriel Mountains, you get into the Los Padres National Forest, the, the Angeles National Forest, the Cleveland National Forest. All of that quickly becomes really, really wild and rugged. And, you know, when you're out in those areas, it's open space. And it, I mean, it feels as isolated as any any other place it's just when you get up onto a mountaintop you can you know see the the haze of smog from LA or or the urban centers that are not that far away and you know it is this kind of interesting juxtaposition of like you know condor country and the wilderness um of of the Los Padres National Forest and those open spaces with you know Los Angeles um yeah it's 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 pretty interesting yeah it's amazing how much of southern california is still there's so much backcountry. Yeah. There's so many places to get lost. And and in case you haven't been here for our audience, um, condors do not nest in easily accessible places. Yeah. So when you see these cameras, that is the result of a lot of work and uh, some uh, some rock climbing yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and some belaying. And, um, and so it's really special that you can get a glimpse there. Um, so kind of staying on the topic of the balance of use. Mm-hmm. So um, I'm going to use an example of... Uh, the Devil's Hole pupfish. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're going to talk about endangered species. Sure, yeah. sure, yeah. Um, I was recently out at Ash Meadows National Wildlife mm-hmm. Refuge, very remote, yeah. about 100 miles north of Las Vegas. Yeah, I just did a Death uh, Valley. 30-day detail at Ash Meadows <laughs> um, only a month and a half ago or oh, so. Oh, so, so I just so, missed you. Yeah, uh, yeah. They have a wonderful new visitor center, and, and it, it's great, very hot. Mm-hmm. Um, but the Devil's Hole pupfish... Um, was a flashpoint. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was, you know, it's protected. It's mm-hmm. one of the rarest species on earth. It lives in one particular habitat yep. found nowhere else. Uh, but it, it comes into competition in an odd way with the interests of the surrounding people. So mm-hmm. it's actually a very controversial fish. Sure. So, and I kind of look at the condors too as um, one of the questions I get asked by some people who are maybe not as conservation minded, mm-hmm. um, who are more, um, they're more concerned with agriculture needs mm-hmm. and hunting, mm-hmm. uh, things like that. Um, they say, they ask why, you know, yeah. why do we uh, put all this time and resource into saving the species that is on its way out? And I just wanted to know from your perspective, you know, what do you tell folks like that if yeah. they come, come with those questions? Yeah, you know, I mean, um, I'm, I'm definitely someone that, that kind of looks for the common ground, you know, where the, the, 
the condor might benefit our own interests as as people also occupying that space, um, you know. But I do think there's kind of this underlying responsibility. You know, we as a species, you know, hu- humans are are um, you know we're present everywhere, and you know, I, I do think um, you know personally. Uh, you know, I want to be uh, an individual who who is a good steward, who's able to coexist with, you know, any number of different animals um, and and species and habitat and ecosystems within within the world. Um, so, I look at the causes um, by which the condors declined, and I see a lot of. Um, uh, anthropogenic or human caused, uh, uh, human caused factors, um, issues like, um, you know, power line collisions, uh, lead poisoning, um, you know, uh, habitat alteration. Those are all things that I think we have a hand in. And so, you know, for, for me, I think there's, you know, I feel responsible for doing, um, you know, doing right by by condors, right? We we may have been we may have had a hand in their decline, so we can have a hand in their recovery as well. Um, but on, on top of that, um, you know, there is sometimes controversy related to condors that, um, you know, I I wonder if it has more to do with. You know, just some sometimes the, the political polarization of of things and and less to do with actual condors themselves. So, um, you know, one of the big issues with condors, of course, is lead poisoning. And condors are are um, lead poisoned because they eat carrion or they eat dead animals that have been shot with lead ammunition. And so, you know, people kind of sometimes very quickly come to a conclusion where, well. If the lead ammunition is a problem, it's the people shooting the lead ammunition that's that's really you know that those are the folks that are those are the folks that are the problem. And I definitely don't see it that way. I, I look at you know the, the hunting and ranching communities um, that surround many of the refuges that we work on, and certainly occupy much of the habitat that condors are currently using. Um, as as the solution to the lead issue, um, as opposed to the as as opposed to the problem. So, what we need, um, you know, for condors and and lead is we need to reduce the amount of contaminated carrion. But we also, you know, carrion is what they feed. We also want to maintain carrion on the landscape. So a lot of what we do is we work with those hunters and ranchers to change from a lead ammunition to a non-lead ammunition, but maintain those activities, those human activities on the landscape because they're producing food for condors. And so it's, it's, just, it's really education and outreach. Yes, yeah, exactly. So yeah. the the lead, the lead, um, you know, the lead issue for condors is one that the hunting and, and ranching communities um, that are within condor habitat are going to be the solutions for. Like they they will be the folks that are providing the clean food source for condors as opposed to a contaminated food source. So you can tell if someone came to you and said, well, why should we conserve them? You can say because they clean up after people. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, certainly. I mean, there's the, you know, and I think I mean, it got off track with, with your question of like, why to save the condors? Um, you know, I, I think, yeah, condors are playing a role as, you know, in the ecosystem as scavengers, right? So they go around, they clean things up. And that's what scavengers do. And so they're one of many scavenging species that, that do that. Are they, you know, some sort of, um, you know, keystone species? Like if we, if we didn't have condors, 
you know, would, would the ecosystem function with scavengers? We just not, not necessarily, you know, it's, it, you know, I'm be, be honest, like that's, that's not necessarily the role that condors are playing. They are a very large scavenger. So they do the job of scavenging these large carcasses better than most other scavengers out there. But turkey vultures are pretty good at it too. And, you know, crows and ravens and eagles all do that, all perform that role as well. So, but they, they are, they're part of that, that cleanup crew. For, for nature. And, um, you know, the other thing that I think about in terms of condors is, you know, what what are condors needs and where where do they overlap with human needs? And, you know, in, in particular, as you know, as a hunter myself, I think about condors as a, you know, as a species that needs open space. And that's something I'm certainly interested in as a hunter. I need open space to go harvest animals, um, you know, to just go out in, in the back countries of California to shoot a deer. Um, I need that back country and so do condors. And so I, I see, you know, uh, there's a common interest there. Um, and, and, you know, that juxtaposition from Los Angeles, the urban center of, of LA, to say the Los Padres National Forest, um, which is a you know a national forest that condors occupy a lot of, you know, it is such a clear distinction between you know heavily used um, human development to just wild country and and. You know, there are folks, um, you know, in those urban areas beyond the hunting community, but, you know, um, that that also value the, that open space and use it for any number of different things. So you're hiking, you're backpacking, you're just ability to get away from the hustle and bustle, you know, and I mean, it's everyone. I mean, and, and this is, you know, partly to do with the urban refuge uh, work that we're doing, but, you know, creating that bridge and, and using condors as a vehicle to create a bridge between, you know, the folks who are maybe surrounded by, you know, the urban life um, into these more kind of wide open and, and natural and wild places. You know, how do we, you know, kind of create a bridge between those two so people from all different walks of life can appreciate that? And, yeah. And for me, they're, um, you know, a, a lot of their role is as uh, a symbol of conservation, yeah. how conservation can work, yeah. because the program's been very successful sure, considering sure. The breeding cycles and challenges. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you have this urban audience and you have these kids who maybe don't know that these giant birds are up there, but once yeah. they know that, oh, it's incredible. Yeah, they're it's, just amazed. And, yeah. and we did, um, you know, a couple weekends of tabling events mm-hmm. at the LA Zoo, mm-hmm. and uh, children who had never seen the picture of a condor before were just—I think I described a wingspan as two NBA players stacked sure. on top, yeah, yeah. <laughs> just to sort of give them some frame of reference. And now I think. Uh, once they know it's up there, that just kind of sparks something in their imagination. Yeah. From my perspective, so. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about the Condor Kids program and, and how that's reaching? Um... Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, the, Con- the Condor Kids program uh, was a program that's uh, kind of an initiative that took place to kind of bring more of these urban communities um, into, uh, you know, on- onto wildlife refuges and give them access in ways that they wouldn't otherwise have and, you know, kind of... S- really looking towards, um, you know, how to ensure that, you know, these resources, the resources of refuges and the species that we're protecting are valued into the future to allow, you know, you know, the, the, the folks um, who might not otherwise have access to give them a, a means to appreciate what, what we're, um, 
what we're doing with these endangered species or on these wildlife refuges. And so a part of that um, was this program that we developed with the Santa Barbara Zoo called Condor Kids. And, you know, at its, at its kind of brass tacks, um, it's started out as a, um, a school curriculum for third graders. So we, we kind of hope to expand that into other, other grades. But um, for right now, um, it's a third grade curriculum that uses uh, con- the, the story of the condors and the science that we're doing um, within the condor program as a way to teach you know, your common core, your, your, your basic math, science, and reading skills, and, um, and using um, the access that we have to the Santa Barbara Zoo or our refuges as ways to kind of, okay, you've learned these things about condors and these underlying, you know, kind of more fundamental skills as students, um, you know, about, you know, we've used condors to teach you these things. Now, you know, come to the zoo, come to a refuge and see those, you know, this, this species up close and personal and, and interact with the, um, the biologists, the zookeepers, the veterinarians, um, the, uh, you know, and, and the, any number of career paths um, that you could take uh, as, you know, as kind of role models for these students to kind of show them, hey, here are, um, he, these are all walks of life. These are all options. There's people that, you know, are, are making careers out of this and it's inspiring those, those young kids to, to maybe do the same, but, it, but if not, at least have an appreciation for um, condors as a resource, uh, endangered species recovery as a worthwhile, um, you know, activity, and the National Wildlife Refuge System as a, you know, um, a vehicle or or leader in protecting habitat across the country, whether it's related to condors or any number of other animals or species. And uh, this curriculum is available for free. Yeah, uh, absolutely. On condorkids.net. Yep. Um, and uh, you're working on a sixth grade curriculum. We as well? are. Okay. Yeah, yeah. We're working on a sixth grade cur- curriculum, and um, you know our, you know. Um, our plan is to also develop a ninth grade curriculum so that we're not just, you know, we, we're planting a seed maybe as as they're young in, in the elementary school, kind of putting a little water on that um, on that seed, kind of developing, uh, you know, a little more complex ideas in terms of the science and, and um, you know, ideas related to endangered species recovery and, and history. Um, and then, in, you know, hope, with the hopes being like, you know, having something at the high school level where you can actually, you know, turn, you know, that that kind of mindset into, uh, you know, here's at this point, maybe this is, you know, the thing for you. This might be the career that you want to pursue and be, make that, you know, be a bit more career focused on on, uh, on the high school level. So what was that moment for you, Joseph? Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I grew up in uh, in upstate New York and I I was fortunate enough to to grow up in an area um, just outside of Syracuse um, on a kind of a. My parents had a, a subsistence farm, so we had about 50 yeah, to 60 acres. Um, and so I, I grew up immersed in, in kind of a natural surrounding, um, you know, and, and I think my, my career path, you know, it's kind of gone all, you know, you look back at my, you know, my life and it's kind of been all over the place in, in some ways, but it really was those kind of memories of being outside, um, the time that I was able to spend with my, my father going hunting or fishing or camping and thinking like, you know, wow, that's, if I could do that as a way to, you know, to make a living, like that'd be pretty incredible. And it, it took me a little while to figure out, 
you know, how I could do that. But, you know, that's where I settled on, um, uh, you know, kind of working in the sciences and working as a biologist, um, you know, is this, well, okay, the field work, you know, I did pursue, you know, um, with friends in high school and whatnot, I, I, I pursued rock climbing and mountain climbing and, you know, some of these, you know, more extreme activities and all and, things you absolutely need to study. Well, yeah, exactly. And I mean, never, I never really put that together. Like that was kind of maybe some dumb luck of like, really? Like you need someone who knows how to rock climb in order to study condors. And, and that's really, and I always saw myself doing wildlife biology, but the condor program specifically just really was well matched to some of my other skills that, you know, I never really realized until, until, you know, I'm halfway through my career, you know, or I'm years into my career, like, wow, I'm so fortunate to be able to have worked, you know, even rock climbed as a as a college student or whatnot, never thinking that was going to be, you know, related to me making a paycheck and, you know, helping, you know, pay a mortgage and, and all of those things, you know, feed my kids and those those sorts of stuff. But um, but yeah, you know, and I, now I, I come at it, and, you know, when I'm talking with um, with students or, or people who are studying biology, I, I remember, you know, I, I use my own experience as a way to kind of remind them, like, it may not, you know, the biology is, of course, important to learn, but there may be other things that you're doing in life that are going to play into your career and your the path it takes that just you just don't ever know you know whether you're a uh, you know uh, an illustrator or you know an IT person and know lots about computer programming um, you know drone technology these days is really important and in a lot of wildlife fields are the nest camera stuff like i didn't you know 3 or maybe 5 years ago now i had no idea what an ip address was now I know how to set up, you know, I, I, I can set up a wireless network across the most remote, rugged, mountainous terrain ever. Never did I think that was going to be something I needed to know as a biologist. And so it is this, this ability to kind of use the skills you have in a real creative way to, to get the job done. And, and, you know, I think the team of biologists that I lead within Condors, I've learned a lot from them because that's where I learned some of those skills. Um, you know, that, that ability to kind of creatively think uh, and problem solve is is how we've been so successful in, in the Condor program. So let's talk a little bit about the job, um, because uh, there's a lot of time in the backcountry mm-hmm. and, um, you know, birds fly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> They're not that easy to find. Yeah. So um, can you talk a little bit about um, how you track the birds and just sort of what your day-to-day is? Yeah, yeah. So, I, you know, I'll use the day-to-day of, um, you know, now that I'm a supervisor, I spend a little bit less time. I spend a little more time in front of a desk and less time, uh, you know, chasing the birds around. But I have a lot of other biologists that do that for me. So I'll speak for our team, um, not necessarily for myself all the time. But I, I do manage to still get outside um, a fair amount. So, um so once we've released condors into the wild, yeah, the biggest challenge is tracking them because they are such an incredible species in their way in the way that they move across the landscape. So you know, a condor can fly hundreds of miles in a given day. Um, they use uh, the wind currents, as I mentioned before, you know, in a way that a hang glider does. So they're expending very, very little energy to move around, and it, that really what is what allows them to to travel such great distances. Um, and that makes a lot of sense because it's a perfect adaptation if you don't know where your next meal is coming from as a scavenger. So, um, you know, that 
presents a challenge for us because if we're releasing a condor um, and it's going to fly, you know, you know, after its first few months in the wild, it's going to start flying, you know, these great, great distances. How do you keep track of an animal like that? Because you might think you know where it is and you end up driving, you know, through the mountains hours to get to that spot. And, you know, you're settling in, ready to watch it, and maybe it's there, and it just decides to fly another 50 miles someplace else, and then that means you're spending all of your time just chasing the thing around, or the, 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 the condor around. So um, we use uh, different technology. We use uh, uh, VHF transmitters, which are basically radio transmitters. VHF stands for very high frequency, but they're uh, a little radio transmitter that we affix to either the condor's wing or the tail feather of the condor, which allows us to use these kind of special receivers and, and antennas to identify what direction the condor is in. And, and through, you know, once you know where, what direction the condor is in, you can kind of track it and get to it where it gets to where it's located. The most important thing about those very high transmitters uh, or those VHF transmitters for us is um, they have a switch in them that uh, when the condor stops moving for a very long period of time, like a 12 hour period of no movement, the, tr the, the, the signal from that transmitter changes. So we can, and that allows us to identify, identify and locate those particular condors, which unfortunately happen to be the ones that have died. And, you know, as you know, you'd think it's very, very important to know what endangered species are dying of because that's probably what's making them endangered, or at least, a, you know, many endangered species programs are related to those threats. So that's a big part of our program uh, is to be able to understand, you know, what the what the condors are dying of. And so we use those transmitters to, to identify those birds. We also use another technology, GPS. We use GPS transmitters to track condor movements. And those transmitters give us much more detailed information about how the condors are moving. So I can take one of these transmitters and attach it to a condor's wing. And um, as the condor moves around, it will collect a data location about every 15 minutes. And so with that, in, in that data point, I get a location, so latitude, longitude. Um, I also get the speed at which the condor is traveling. And um, I get the direction the condor is traveling in. Um, and then because I've recorded the information, I know what condor I've attached it to and how it is related to the rest of the population. And so that, um, that data we only receive once a day. So that transmitter essentially makes um, either a, a satellite phone call or a cell phone call, more or less using the same sort of technology in satellite or cell phones to transmit that data to me sitting at a computer or whether it's here in our office or out at one of the refuges. Um, and so then I can upload that to a, a GIS software or Google Earth, and I can actually see how that condor has moved in a 24-hour period. Um, and so that really allows us to understand how condors are utilizing their habitat. And it's from those data, we really have an understanding of like, you know, as we've increased the numbers of condors out in the wild, how the population is expanding, what areas are becoming very important for them, um, what areas are we might need to be concerned about. You know, that's one of the, you know, we're working very closely with um, some wind energy companies because that's a potential threat for condors. I say potential because we've yet to see a condor taken by, by wind turbines, but we know from other vulture species that it can, it, they can, turbines can, um, injure large soaring raptors like condors. So 
Um, you know, but we can learn through that GPS data, you know, the times of day that may be a concern, um, you know, the, the times of year that they are, might be in those areas, and just how they move around across this large habitat. We can also overlay um, all of that movement data with different weather conditions and predict, like today is a Santa Ana wind event. We're getting all these strong offshore winds. That's typically not the normal wind pattern, uh, you know, for a large part portion of the year in Southern California. Condors be behave differently when the winds are blowing in this direction than if, you know, when they're blowing onshore. And so you, you, you get to have this kind of um, perspective into the third dimension of habitat that condors utilize, which is the sky, right? The, what, what the air is doing. And so a lot of that's really kind of exciting, fun, spatial ecology st type stuff. But um, in the end, it translates down to us being able to identify important habitat for condors. So the, the technology means that you don't have to be constantly in a field chasing them yeah, around. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's, that's you know, good. The, the, the transmitters themselves are, are fairly expensive, but when you start to look at what they you afford you, get the data yeah, there would be yeah. no way to get this data. Or if you attempted to get that data via just people out tracking on mountaintops and VHF, you you know, it, it very quickly becomes, you realize like, oh, this is the most efficient way to understand condor movements. So you mentioned um, the wind event that we're currently experiencing. Yeah, uh, yeah. Just so everyone knows, the uh, weather's been very strange here in Southern <laughs> California for the last couple of days. But um, we're just about almost at the year, or we may have just passed the year of the Thomas Thomas yeah, Fire. Yeah, we're not quite there. Yeah. Thomas Fire was in, in December. But um, the wind event that we're having today was really what drove the the Thomas Fire to be the, the kind of catastrophic event that it, that it was. Yeah, so to put this in context, because I do want to get, yeah. uh, now that we're about uh, almost a year anniversary. Mm -hmm. So the Thomas Fire was uh, really devastating to property, to human life. Mm -hmm. There were mudslides. But um, it also really threatened um, a nest, I mm -hmm. believe. Mm -hmm. um, and um, it's hard to describe how damaging this fire was. And I think it didn't even hold on to its record as the largest in California history because our wildfire season yeah. was so long. Yeah. Um, but the Santa Ana winds were integral in, in causing that uh, destruction. So um, do you want to talk a little bit about what happened uh, with that nest and mm -hmm. what you were thinking and then um, how you guys um, – Followed up after the fire. Yeah, was yeah. You know, I mean, the the fires. Um, you know, it, it's a it's a big part of our field program. Um, to realize that you know we live in a part of of California that you know. I mean, there's almost not a fire season, you know, there's almost not a time of year that you're not concerned about wildfires, um, you know, especially coming, you know, in the this, these last few years have been very dry. We've been kind of in a drought. Um, so there's almost this year round concern for wildfires um, in this part of California. The biggest time of year that's a concern is when we start getting these Santa Ana wind events, which are typically, you know, October, November, December, and sometimes even into January. But the, the fall, early winter months tend to be those, those you know, kind of really, really high alert uh, times, times of year. And it's because you get these really strong winds coming out of the Mojave Desert that are blowing, you know, really i mean at least dry and strong you know hot strong winds so upwards of 20 30 sometimes even 60 70 mile per hour winds um blowing out of the east uh, you know out to the ocean so you know from the um 
from from east to to west rather than west to east um and it's the air is so dry so your relative humidities are down into single digits which means if there is an ignition fire is going to move fast and and um because of how dry things are and then you kind of combine that with um you know you know, a few years of drought. So now the moisture and all the fuels, all the, even the living plants are so dry. You know, you, they're very brittle. You're going out into these chap, chaparral communities, you know, shrublands. And, you know, there's just, everything is just like, you know, ready to burn. Um, and so when you have a, an ignition um, during one of these, these uh, wind events, fire can travel incredibly fast. And, you know, condors um, as a species are, are fairly adapted to fire. You know, they've, they've coexisted with it for many thousands of years. And, you know, they're, the way they respond to fire is, is relatively, even today, is, is still, um, you, you, you still see that. You know, essentially, it, as a bird, because it's able to fly, it just flies up, moves to a place that's not burning. And for the most part, you have these areas, you know, you, you, the flock is, is fairly... Um, able to to adapt to the to the fire moving through moving in uh, um, condors um where they have been succumbed to fires have been when they've been roosting in an area that the fire has moved so roosting is overnighting you know spending the night in a tree or on a rock um and so where they've been roosting in an area that the fire moves through very quickly which was you know that was the case with the thomas fire i you know i i living in ventura here um i remember i just finished you know training um and getting you know walking out the door of our gym and smelling smoke and realizing like oh and you know having someone say oh there's a fire in santa paula which is if you don't know the area it's a town you know 15 20 miles to the to the east and within a couple of hours that fire was in ventura and burning um you know an apartment building you know down really close to downtown ventura i mean it was it was incredible how quickly and powerful this fire was driven by these conditions and so our concern um, was a first, of course, the human safety, right? We have people out in these very remote areas and, we, you know, I'm on the phone as this fire is burning and making sure it's not burning in an area where some of our field team is, is potentially threatened. Figured that out. And then after that, you start thinking about, okay, where are the condors in relation to where this fire burned? And the only condor that, you know, really was threatened um, was a, a chick that was in a nest. Um, the chick was about six months old, um, which is a, right about the time it's, it it's, takes its first flight. And the fire um, was burning. It was actually a little bit to the west of the of where the nest was, and it was um, and it was burning in a westerly direction for the most part. But we started seeing as this fire, these fires end up being months, you know, they take months to put out. But we were, what we end up seeing is you get the Santa Ana event, wind event, which would push the fire towards, um, towards actually human population centers along the coast. So Ventura, Ojai, Santa Barbara. Um, and then when those wind events would subside, it would start burning back to the east a little bit towards the nest. So you're kind of like this, oh, no, don't burn up the home, you know, like, like the community that I live in. But then, oh, don't burn towards this nest either. And, and um, you know, after a few days, we realized it was after about a week, we realized like, oh, this nest is going to is going to burn. And at that point, there's not much we can do. Um, and so we were able to, uh, you know, kind of team up with some of the fire crews. We have a, a, a fire crew that works for the National Wildlife Refuge System out of the San Diego Refuge Office. Um, they came up, 
they were able to kind of escort um, one of our biologists out to a safe area where we could track that chick because at four months of age, we had put a VHF transmitter on the chick. And so, you know, we were getting its signal before the fire um, burned through or burned over the nest. And then, you know, eventually the fire burned over the nest and we lost the chick signal. And so that was you know, in some ways worrisome, but at the same time, it wasn't a mortality signal either. It wasn't, it wasn't like we got a switch, like this chick stopped moving. And so um, at that point, we were able to use the, um, the GPS data from the parent, one of, one, of the parent, one of the parents, the mother of the chick was wearing a GPS transmitter and follow her activity because we weren't able to go into this area because of the danger that the fire presented. And so we noticed that, you know, now she was no longer coming to the nest, but she was going to an area that hadn't burned right across uh, this, this kind of river corridor um, and was spending time there. And it made us get, gave us a little bit of hope that we were like, well, okay, there's a really good chance this chick who was on the verge of fledging anyways, taking its first flight, may have flown um, to escape the flat fire. And, you know, long story short, after, you know, a lot of firefighters put out, you know, contained the fire and, and kind of, you know, had the fire under control in that area, um, we were able to send a, a team of biologists out and track down this chick um, using the VHF telemetry. And sure enough, um, it was located, you know, only, you know, maybe a few hundred yards away from the where the fire was stopped, which was the Sespe River corridor. And um, it was perched on a, on a cliff, you know, not far from where it nested. And um, it's both of its parents were in the area and still caring for it. And, you know, when we got a close look at it, we actually saw some of the, the tips of the, of the chick's wings had been singed from the fire. So, you know, one can, you know, put that story together and just imagine the, the, the great escape it had. Um, so even, even in the case of this chick, it was able to survive the fire, which is really the case for um, many of the condor nests that we've seen have burned in the fires is, you know, they either happen at a time where the chick's able to escape or the, the, the nest is so kind of up on a cliff and located that the, the chick's able to just kind of hunker down and, um, and survive the fire that way. Well, that was a, a dramatic tale. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, it was... Taking your first flight yeah, under duress. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it was just, I mean, but we were all... Were you relieved? Yeah, I mean, we were incredibly relieved. And, and it became, you know... The the community of Santa Barbara, Ventura, and the greater surrounding area. I mean, it became kind of a this just a a good news story that was I think helpful for for everyone because of how hard it was to go through um, you know a, a, an event like that. I mean, a wildfire like literally you know breathing down in you know coming down into you know areas that I would have never guessed fires would have burned. You know and and um, you know, I had a lot of friends that were, you know, personally affected by the fires and, you know, you'd see them um, and they talk and they'd, they'd you want to, you know, like, what can I do for you? And they'd ask you, oh, how are their condors? Are they OK? You know, and and, um, you know, to, to share that story, it was kind of a an opportunity for people to say, you know what, we're going to every we're all going to make it through this. And, and the community did kind of pull together. Um, and it's like a symbol of uh, persistence. Yeah, and yeah, and and you know here we are a year later, the habitat is is coming back. You know, um, the pair of condors um, uh, uh, that that had that chick. Unfortunately, the the female uh, ha- has died from unrelated causes. Um, 
Uh, we we don't we don't know why yet, but you know chances are it might have had to do with lead poisoning. Um, and but the male is still around. Um, there's some other available females, and so he's likely to nest there again. Their chick. Um, we now have a GPS transmitter on it. We were able to trap it and put a transmitter on to track its movements, and it's flying. You know everywhere that the condor flock inhabits in this part of California, which is, you know, the southern end of the Sespe into um, you know, portions of the Santa Barbara backcountry, up into the Tehachapi Mountains and into the Southern Sierras. So it's starting to you know, do what it does as a condor um, you know, at, you know, at the right age. And um, we're hopeful to see um, uh, that, that chick's uh, father you know, kind of repair and use that nesting habitat again. Um, yeah, so we'll, we'll see. It's, it's, it's uh, you know, the cycle continues. Before you mentioned, um, you guys work with a lot of partners, mm-hmm. um, and given that your resources have not grown as the flock has grown, sure. I, I know you rely on external partners, but also volunteers. Yeah. So if someone lives in the Simi Valley or the area around here, how mm-hmm. could they get more involved in helping uh, the Condor Recovery Project? Yeah. So um, we do have a, a, a kind of an army of volunteers that assist us in a lot of different ways. Um, you know, maybe our our Entry point for a lot of volunteers um, is a, uh, a nest observer program. So uh, we have um, condor nest, condors nesting in, in kind of portions of the Los Padres up into Kern County um, in many of the kind of mountainous areas of, of uh, California where the condor population in this area occupy. And so um, we're constantly recruiting volunteers for, um, you know, to, to observe those nests. And that's, it's not necessarily a, a volunteer, um, you know, experience for the faint of heart. We do get people out into these kind of remote backcountry areas. Um, some are, you know, you know, multi, you know, like a, you know, a multi-day, you know, overnighting in kind of uh, backcountry, you know, wilderness type settings, and others are, are nests that you can, you know, drive some, you know, mountainous forest service roads up to and then s- sit and watch not too far from your car. So that depends on, on what sort of nest we get each year. But our nesting population is growing every year. So this year we had uh, 12 nests, um, six of which are still, uh, are still active. And 12 nests is more nests than we've ever recorded in California um, in the history since Carl Crawford's time. But with those more and more nests, we're um, always in need to have folks come out and help observe. And they, they can do that by contacting um, our office, the Hopper Mountain National Wildlife Refuge Complex, or the Santa Barbara Zoo. The zoo, um, uh, the Santa Barbara Zoo is a very close partner to us. And people think of zoos and they think of the captive breeding program. But in fact, the, the Santa Barbara Zoo doesn't have a, a group of, they're not captively, they're not breeding condors into captivity. They do have some condors on exhibit that are being held for the captive breeding program. But where they really help us the most is by providing field staff. So, you know, the team that I um, that I help lead is, you know, made up of uh, Fish and Wildlife Service uh, employees, Santa Barbara Zoo employees, and also uh, we have a partnership with the Great Basin Institute, another organization that provides kind of entry-level positions for, you know, co- folks coming right out of college to gain f- field experience. So, um, so the volunteers kind of are an extension of that core group of biologists, and they end up being, you know, essential. We, we have, you know, well over 2,000 hours worth of volunteers, uh, you know, volunteer hours that just help out in nest observation each year. And um, 
And then from there, uh, you know, those Nest observers, they, they sometimes become, you know, more integrated into the program and help with tracking. You know, they'll do they'll go out and do if we have a bird that's been missing for a while, they might go out and do some radio telemetry work for us. Um, we'll also take, uh, you know, college students who don't have the time to you know sign up for, say, one of the longer term internships. You know, we'll have college students come out and volunteer with us for, you know, like a two or three week period. And, and gain to gain field experience. And, you know, we're, we're being close to population centers like Santa Barbara, Ventura, um, Los Angeles. You know, we do have some, you know, good relationships with some of the local universities and colleges like the University, University uh, UC Santa Barbara or, or Cal State Channel Islands. Um, you know, a lot of the, a lot of times we'll have students from those, you know, those schools come and and come volunteer with us and and. Um, yeah, it's, it's a great way for aspiring biologists to kind of get their foot in the door and gain some of that field experience that everyone is looking for when they're out trying to get a job. And then we also have a, a friends group that helps with more, you know, I would say front country type of volunteer experience. Like, you know, they do education and outreach, out, outreach booths at different um, festivals and things in town. Um, they also do project work for us. So, you know, just, you know, the, 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 the facilities maintenance, we have bunk housing, like every once in a while, like, a, you know, a, you know, it, we could use a fresh coat of paint. Well, we have a group of volunteers that help us with that. And those folks might not be the folks that could hike down a trail or whatnot, but, you know, we're, we're there's all sorts of different ways that folks can help out um, through volunteers. And the friends group is a big part of that as well. The, Condo recovery is in process. Yeah, yeah. What does success look like to you? When do you hang up your your hat? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that is that is the the kind of eventuality is right. The biologists here are really doing our best to work ourselves out of a job, and um, I don't think that is going to happen um, in the near term um, because there is a you know while we have made lots of successes, there are there is still work to be done. Um, you know, some of those kind of goals um, for success have, have yet yet to even be kind of lined out we have we're working on it um, uh, you know currently the recovery plan which is kind of the overarching plan that you know kind of sets the framework for what recovery is well for condors um, you know the, the last recovery plan was written in 1996 and um, in 1996 there were all of you know probably less than 50 condors in the wild um, to you know and probably you know, fewer than a couple hundred condors in the world, like, you know, and so um, at that time, they really didn't think they had enough information to set the criteria for recovery, for, for delisting the species, like saying you are no longer endangered. But what they did set is they set this, the, the criteria for downlisting. And that means to become, rather than being endangered, you'd be, down, you know, as a species on the road to recovery, you go from endangered, you're downlisted listed to threatened, and then you're delisted. And so um, the, the criteria for downlisting to threatened is to have uh, two populations, each with 150 birds in the wild, um, and uh, having each population having 15 breeding pair. In California, we're, we're very, very close to achieving that goal. And the next population that's that's kind of on its way there is the northern Arizona, Utah population. They're, they're a little... Uh, um, they're a little ways behind for in terms of establishing that uh, population of 150, but they're they're also progressing, um, uh, you know, and on their way there. I think 
California could reach, the, you know, the criteria for downlisting, um, you know, easily within the next five years. Um, and it's a little tougher to say. I'm not as familiar with the Arizona flock, but I think that, you know, they're not very far behind us um, to get to those numerical um, kind of numbers. The under the other side of that, that, that criteria is a little more... Um, uh, kind of qualitative in that you want those populations to be sustainable, right? And so sustainable when you're when you're talking about a population of about 150 birds, uh, you know, birds each, you really want to see positive growth, and um, and that's a little trickier, um, and it relates to some of the threats. So you know, lead poisoning being the biggest threat for condors across all wild populations is the big the the big question. You know, we've done some modeling with with some of our um, you know kind of academic colleagues. Uh, UC Santa Cruz is a big partner of ours um, in helping us with the population viability analysis that we're doing. But if we can reduce uh, lead exposure significantly, our populations would be exhibiting positive growth right now. Um, without doing that, um, it you know there may not be a way to get to sustainable populations. So that's where you know a lot of our our program is also kind of re-gearing and re becoming very focused on the issues of lead contamination. And, and it's, you know, it gets, it gets tricky because, you know, as I mentioned before, you have um, different interests who interpret that problem in different ways. And depending on, you know, what the underlying perspective of any interest is, you know, it may be, you know, you could have uh, an organization on one side that just wants to say, you know, they want to keep the status quo um, and they want to say that all the science involved in, in lead contamination is just junk. And then you have people on the other side of the spectrum that say, you know, the way to get rid of lead contamination is to do away with hunting completely. And neither of those are solutions um, that really work for condors, right? So we want there to be hunting because it's a food source, but we need that hunting to happen without without um, lead, or we need those car carcasses to be produced without lead contam being lead contaminated. And so um, we have uh, partnerships. Um, the, the, the Pinnacles National Park does a lot of effort with um, non-lead outreach. Uh, the Peregrine Fund and the um, Arizona Department of Fish and Game in Arizona does a lot of effort with, with the hunting community and, and non-lead outreach. And then the Institute for Wildlife Studies um, works also within California, um, runs a a, uh, a page called huntingwithnonlead.org, um, a huge resource for hunters and ranchers about how to, you know, effectively make that transition from lead to non-lead in a way that they can still continue to, to use, uh, you know, to, to continue to, you know, hunt and, um, and um, you know, do the depredation that's needed and sometimes within the ranching world. Um, and and do it in a way that um, actually helps condors and isn't a detriment to them. And so um, that's the big challenge for us. You know, it's 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 a it's a hurdle. Um, it's one that's you know obviously a bit more political than than say you know the DDT contaminations of the Peregrine Fund and the the California brown pelican and the bald eagles. Um, but it's one that you know it's it's fairly simple in that that it's if this issue can be corrected we have a we have a light at the at the end of the tunnel for condors 
So there's no magic number. There's, there's, there's no, no magic number yet, but it's, you know, we have, I guess the two are, you know, 300 is for downlisting and it will probably be somewhere in the order of, a, of you know, two, 3,000 um, for, for yeah. a delisting. Is that the, what we think? Yeah, the numbers don't tell the whole story. No, not at all. Yeah. Not at all. So um, what do you wish I had asked you? Is there anything that you'd want to get across oh, that I didn't geez. ask? Jeez. Um, I feel like I've gotten across, you know, most everything. I, I do want to emphasize, you know, the 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 need for partnerships and sometimes the need for partnerships um, that are, you know, not the ones that you often think about. Non-traditional partnerships. Yeah. Like, you know, I, I really think that there's a lot of... Um, um, there's a lot of good that can come from, you know, um, involving, you know, hunting organizations, for example, into, you know, in, in the Condor program. I think that's a, that's a big aspect that, um, you know, we are hopefully, you know, moving forward, you know, with, um, through the non-let outreach that we're doing, but also, you know, encouraging, um, you know, that community in particular to be stewards um, of, uh, you know, and, and there's a long tradition of, of conservation within hunting. Um, and so, you know, to try to restoke that that kind of conservation mindedness of, you know, Theodore Roosevelt um, and, 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 you know, kind of bring that to the back to the forefront um, of, 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 uh, you know, the minds of hunters, I think, would be a, would be a huge um, success for us and would be a success for condors. Um, but also, you know, outside of that, non-traditional partnerships within, you know, um, other industries. You know, we have, um, uh, you know, condor country is a huge, huge area, right? The, the flock that we manage occupied about 18,000 square miles last year. I mean, that's, that is a massive, massive area. That's the size of some states on the East Coast, right? So you think about, you know, we're not going to be able to set aside that much, that much air, space just for condors, right? And so we need to think about how um, we, we um, develop uh, relationships with the other um, the other activities that are that are going to be occupying that same space, whether it be wind energy, whether it be um, you know uh, oil and gas extraction, those different things, and and we um, fortunately you know the Condor program has been a vehicle to create some of those non-traditional partnerships. You know I think you know people are sometimes surprised to hear that you know one of our refuges, Hopper Mountain, is is really re- very close to. Uh, um, an area where they're where they're um, doing a lot of pumping of oil. They're pulling oil out of the ground, um, and you know there are some best management practices that we were able to develop with the, that organization. That has really been you know like you know eliminated a lot of the the issues that condors may have had. And so there are these ways that we can coexist or that condors can coexist with human activities and humans can coexist with some of these you know charismatic megafauna like condors. And it's just about you know treading you know treading lightly where we can and and um and then um really considering you know what the species needs are in relation to what our activities are and and you know the, a lot of a lot of times we can work things out in ways that you know it's not always no right we can't we don't we can't say no to everything because of the space that the condors need to occupy. So you um, need to start a dialogue and not just assume that yes. the oil companies coming in, oh my God. Yeah, yeah. exactly, exactly. Uh, starting so a dialogue is Yeah, those, those kind of creation, the creation of partnerships um, 
goes a long way. You know, it's, it is, um, you know, over the years for me, I think, um, it's become, you know, I, I came in thinking with a lot of kind of idea, uh, you know, ideals about, um, you know, what, you know, ecosystem preservation was all about and those sorts of things. And, and now an, an ideal of mine is, is these partnerships is, is really, you know, as we move forward and human populations grow, there's a part of that, that growth that really is about taking into consideration the, the ecosystem in which you're a part of, you know. So speaking of those partnerships, um, mm-hmm. how can the National Wildlife Refuge Association help um, this condo recovery program? Uh, how do you see this national nonprofit as being a, a better partner to you? Yeah, I mean, I mean, the, the National Wildlife Refuge Association is, is, a, is a fantastic or- organization. You are a, a voice for not wildlife refuges, um, and, and that's, that's uh, pretty in- incredible uh, unto itself. And I mean, I think this, just, just what we are doing now, um, being able to, to kind of communicate with, with everyone and a- anyone and every, anyone who's willing to listen about the story of condor conservation, where we are, what our needs are. These are all sorts of, of kind of important um, roles that the, the um, Wildlife Refuge Association can play. Um, and then, you know, Angie, you help us a ton in, in the urban refuge uh, work. <laughs> and so, you know, you're also helping on a on a kind of a nuts and bolts type of level too. So, um, we really value the the um, association as a huge partner. Um, you know, within the within the uh, urban refuge you know world, but also as a you know in, in the larger picture of of national wildlife refuges and conservation in general. They, you know, it's it, it's uh, you, you guys are an incredible organization as well. Well, thank you. Yeah. Um, so this is National Wildlife Refuge Week. Yeah. Um, and we'll be releasing this podcast uh, later in the week. It'll still count. Um, so what's the message about the system in general that you'd like to get out to the public? What does the refuge system mean to you yeah. uh, personally? And, and what do you want to tell people about getting outside and why these refuges yeah. are so important in general? Yeah, in general. You know, I mean, I think, uh, you know, the, the Fish and Wildlife Service and the refuge system is really, you know, they are so special to to the united states even like you know it having you know a a um an agency that's created habitat and set aside space um for wildlife is is so important you know i think you you can go to many other countries and there's just there's just you know not that same kind of appreciation for and not not everywhere, of course, but like, you know, the, the the fact that we have this appreciation for our wildlife resources. It's one of our best exports. Yeah, in in a in a way that I think is, you know, so far beyond. Um, and I mean, we we certainly, you know, if if anything, we were pioneers in in that. You know, you look at the kind of origins of the National Wildlife Refuge System, and there really was kind of nothing like it anywhere else in the world um at you know in terms of a you know a government actually saying this is a this is something we value and we are going to do our best to continue um making available those sorts of resources into the future and i I think that to me is is so special for the for the wildlife refuge system it's it's just um it's just incredible to know that i can go to almost i mean really any state you know, and, and find a wildlife refuge and, and whether it's, 
it's open or closed or you know what you're able to do on it it, it varies depending on the resources and the wildlife it prospects like i i have an appreciation for the fact that it's not about it's 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 not quite like the national park service which is about me as a visitor maybe you know first and foremost whereas um the wildlife refuge system is is more about you know um the wildlife inhabiting those areas and 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 this is not a knock on the park service because they certainly do a wonderful job we have the the channel islands national park we'll cut we'll cut that part (laughs) (laughs) Um, but we have the channel islands national park here i mean they're really you know they're fantastic as well but but to have the perspective of you know this area was created for for wildlife um yeah this area was created for wildlife and we uh and and we truly are the the visitors in those spaces is is pretty incredible and i i think it's it's um you know it's you know i, th- I think about my my kids their kids it's something that you know we're always going to value uh, one final question mm-hmm. uh what is your number one favorite activity on a refuge when you're not working like I'm if you were just to go working. to a refuge in another state and you're on vacation what's the first thing you think to do when you're on a wildlife refuge hmm I've done a lot of fun things on wildlife refuges. I like, I've I've got some. Uh, well, you mentioned duck hunting, yeah, and wildlife yeah. observations. Hunting wildlife observations are probably pretty far up there. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think you know, for me, I mean, it may be it may have to do more with the age of my children than anything, but it's sharing in the natural world with my two sons. So like I mentioned, I, I was able to do a, a, a detail out at Ash Meadows National Wildlife Refuge. Um, we, uh, one weekend, my, my family came out and we, we um, visited the refuge. We went to some of the springs. Uh, we went to Devil's Hole, of course, which is actually a park service, but all the rest of the refuges is, is that we saw um, uh, we saw pupfish. We, you know, we we went on some of the hikes and interpretive trails, and it's just to see their, you know, like sharing that that kind of wonder that that I had. You know, I, I don't live on a, you know, I'm not growing. I, my family, you know, my my sons aren't growing up the way that I grew up. I didn't. I, I'm, you know, I didn't. Or they don't have, you know, the acres farm of land, and acres of land and a forest to run around in. And so their experience is really, um, you know, and their appreciation of nature is really kind of comes through the work that that um, that I do. And then um, then the ability for them to kind of come on when I'm not working and, and I can actually truly share. And so it's like, you know, to go see to go see pupfish and um see how those tiny little endemic ecosystems are working in the middle of death valley it, i mean it's just really incredible and, and the big same horn sheep yeah yeah bighorn sheep um yeah it was it was that's just an incredible um you know incredible thing to share um so joseph i want to thank you so much for your time today we yeah. went way over but it was well worth it <laughs> uh and again this is national wildlife refuge week so i would encourage everybody to find your closest refuge and um, get out there and um, go see some wildlife or just spend time with your family or spend time alone yeah um there are opportunities all over this country um and i want to thank everybody for listening to refuge radio and if you want to find uh information on condor kids you can go to condorkids.net um you can uh google the condor recovery program and and find all those opportunities that joseph spoke of and, and if you're uh, social media and uh you know are active on facebook we have a, a site called the condor cave that 
folks can can check out as well. And where are you on Twitter? Um, there is a, um, uh, I don't know what our Twitter is. We don't have a Fish and Wildlife Service Twitter, at least the, for the Condor program. The Cornell, um, the, the Cornell Bird Cams has uh, the Condor Cam on, on Twitter. That's kind of the most active Condor-related Twitter feed. Yeah, several posts a day. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's really active. Um, Refuge Radio is on now all, uh, streaming on all uh, channels so we're just on iTunes now so catch up on old episodes and um, we'll have a few more guests in the coming weeks and um, again I'm Angie Horn with the Refuge Association and I was with Joseph Brandt and uh, this was Refuge Radio thank you for listening